Hey everyone, thanks so much for coming. Uh, this is the past isn't past, a session about making historical documentaries. I work with 99% Invisible and we're a show about architecture, design, and the built environment, but secretly we're actually a show about history. Um, we do stories about how the built world came to be and how everyday places, objects, and ideas happened. Um, so who invented them, where they came from, how they evolved over time. So we do a lot of history. Um, and after I pitched this session to Third Coast, I sat down and I thought, okay, all of history, all of radio, crap. <laughs> like, how am I going to tackle this? <laughs> so um, to narrow it down, I've decided to focus on a handful of historical stories that feel relevant to the current moment. Um, so these are ones that connect the past and the present in interesting ways and that reveal something about how we got here. And by here, I mean America in the late 20-teens. So I think of these stories um, as stories that use history as a decoder ring for understanding the present. Um, so I'm going to play some tape from an episode of 99PI and then excerpts from some of my recent favorite history-focused stories. Um, and Jad talked about this a little bit yesterday morning, but I think we're, we're at a particularly good moment for telling stories about history. I think a lot of us are trying to understand and explain how we arrived at this time culturally and socially and politically. And a lot of producers are doing interesting work in this form. Um, this, of course, won't be and can't be comprehensive, but I'm going to take a few stories and treat them as case studies and kind of pick apart how they were reported and structured and the way they work. Um, so to start, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play the opening of a 99PI episode about this. Um, this was a radical experiment in redesigning police uniforms. And this excerpt is about three and a half minutes. This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. In 1968, the police department in Menlo Park, California, hired a new police chief. His name was Victor Sazankas. And Chief Sazankas' main goal was to reform the police department's image, which wasn't great at the time. That's our own Delaney Hall. Because this was the 1960s, and even in Menlo Park, a small city with manicured lawns and wide suburban streets, it had been a turbulent decade. There were big student-led anti-war demonstrations at Stanford University, which is right nearby. Joan Baez, the folk singer, created a commune called Struggle Mountain in the foothills above the city. And leaders in the African-American community were organizing protests to demand better treatment and services. The Menlo Park police had clashed with these protesters, sometimes violently. And after years and years of this, the department had a pretty rough reputation. Had a reputation for being a very tough police department, a very aggressive police department, and somewhat of a very uh, anti-race kind of a police department. That's Dominic Peloso. He was hired in 1970 by Chief Sizenkis, the guy who wanted to change this culture. He just, he was one of these type of guys that would come into a room and would just fill in the room, you know, and everybody kind of sits back and says, uh, I think we better listen and go along with this guy. 
Chief Sysenkis had hired Dominic right out of the Jesuit seminary, where Dominic had been studying to be a priest. Sysenkis liked hiring officers from non-traditional law enforcement backgrounds and with higher levels of education. It was just one of his strategies for reforming the department. He also let his officers grow their hair out and have beards and mustaches. He changed all the pseudo-military titles to more corporate ones. Sergeants became managers, for example, and lieutenants became directors. Officers in the department had mixed feelings about all these changes, but one was more controversial than the others. For a long time, officers in Menlo Park had worn a variation of the traditional dark blue police uniform. But Chief Sizankas thought that style was too intimidating and aggressive. So the chief came up with something totally different. It was really a nice, kind of a dark green blazer with some black thread in it. Uh, we wore pastel-colored solid shirts with a tie and slacks. Instead of a metal badge, the blazer sported an embroidered patch that sort of looked like a coat of arms. Guns and handcuffs remained hidden under the jacket. All in all, the officers looked kind of like grown-up prep school students, but with guns. They even had pocket protectors with the Menlo Park Police logo on it that would slide into the pocket of their dress shirts. It seems like the the total effect is he was trying to demilitarize the look and attitude of the department. Yeah, I think that would be a correct uh, statement. Uh, A lot of the guys who join police departments are from the military, and because of the nature of the work, um, it it can be very militaristic, shall we say, an organization and training and all those kinds of things. And he was trying to calm it down. But Chief Sazankas was also messing with a tradition that would prove extremely hard to change. Because the blue military-style uniform had a history that went back more than 100 years. So just quickly some backstory on how I found this story idea, because I think it reveals something about... um, how you can discover history stories in your day-to-day reporting. So I got interested in police uniforms back in 2014 when I was working on a story about police shootings in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And this was back when police brutality and police militarization were in the news a lot. And of course, they're still in the news a lot, but Ferguson had happened not long before. And I was interviewing an ex-officer who had quit the department in Albuquerque. And he just mentioned kind of offhand that he thought the APD was going to need to rebrand as part of restoring trust with the community. Like they needed to get new uniforms and new cars and like a whole new look to show the community um, were making changes. And I found that really interesting and strange, and I'd never really thought about rebranding in the context of police departments. Um, But it seemed connected to these conversations that people were having about the militarized appearance of police and, you know, how they were rolling through communities with tanks and riot gear and what that appearance symbolized about their relationship to the community. So when I started working at 99PI a couple years later, where we do stories about design, I was like, okay, police uniforms are designed, and maybe there's something to the rebranding story. It seemed like kind of an interesting sideways way into the issue of police community relations. 
So my first tip is just to pay attention to tangents and asides in your day-to-day -day reporting and reading. I found that often interviewees um, will mention something offhand or there will be a brief aside in an article or even a footnote um, that will suggest an idea for historical investigation. And just quickly, as another example of that, we, we also did a story in the past year about the history of the modern sanctuary movement, which started in Tucson in the 1980s. And that idea came from the fact that I was reading all of these contemporary news articles about sanctuary cities and these conflicts around the idea of sanctuary. And a lot of those news reports had like one sentence that would say, uh, the sanctuary movement, which started in Arizona in the 1980s, and then wouldn't go any further. Um, and so looking into it, it turns out there's a, a ton of really interesting history there that um, we explored in two episodes, and it really sets the context for what's happening today. Um, so, so follow those tangents that daily news reporters cannot follow, they don't have time, and build whole stories around them. Um, so back to Menlo Park. I started Googling around, and I found uh, a web article about the history of police uniforms, and it had this very, very brief mention of the experiment carried out by the Menlo Park Police Department, where they put the officers in these weird blazers. Um, and it was part of this overall general strategy of de-escalation. So I got in touch with the department, and through them I found this guy. This is Dominic. Um, and he had served as the second in command to Vic Sizenkis, the reformer. And he was like a real cop. He said stuff like this. It wasn't like we slacked off and became, you know, like, oh, mercy and forgiveness and love and peace and all that kind of stuff. You know, oh, no. <laughs> so he was like a, you know, he was a real police officer, but he had also been one of the officers who was open to some of the reforms that Sizenkis was proposing. And he became a great narrator of the Menlo Park story. Um, the Menlo Park anecdote became the through line of our episode, and we wove it together with a much bigger history of the American police system and its various attempts at professionalization and reform over the decades, because it turns out that for, long, for as long as there have been police in America, they have had conflicts with the communities that they're part of, and they have had reform movements, sort of waves of attempts at having better relationships. So in a lot of our stories, we balance these big picture voices with first person voices. And in, in this story, the first person voice is Dominic, who has this direct lived experience with the story. Um, the big picture voices are, are like historians and experts who can provide context and scope and analysis. Um, and so not always, but many of our episodes weave back and forth between these two layers. Um, and it's, it's sort of like the difference between a close-up and a wide angle in film. So at this point in the story, we take a break from Menlo Park and we go all the way back to colonial America when these proto-police groups were first starting up. And we cover the beginning of modern policing and we cover the Wickersham Report in 1929, which was really the first big study or expose of police abuses. 
And then from that report, there was this whole movement to professionalize the police. And so I'll play just a little bit um, from that section. This report, the Wickersham report, really was sort of this turning point, and we need to do something different in policing. And I think that's what led into this professional era. This new professional era, which continued up into the 1960s and 70s, was characterized by an emphasis on policing as a skilled profession. This old educational film called Your Police lays it out. Police departments use modern science to protect you, such as teletype, photography, two-way radio, expert firearms training as standardized by the FBI National Academy, accident prevention installations, and other... Now police were trained to use modern tools and technology. And one of the leading voices for this new method was a guy named August Vollmer. He'd been the first police chief of Berkeley, California, and he helped to write the Wickersham report. Vollmer got his officers to use motorcycles and patrol cars instead of just walking around. That way they could cover bigger areas more efficiently. He was also one of the first chiefs in the U.S. to insist his department use fingerprinting and blood and fiber analysis to help solve crimes. And under his influence, California became a hotbed of police reform from the 1920s through the 1960s, leading, of course, to stuff like Chief Sazankis' blazer uniform experiment in Menlo Park. For a few years, it seemed like Chief Sazankis's. So from that history, we loop back to Menlo Park and we wrap up what happened with Sazankis, um, which is actually that half of his department left and there was a lot of disenchantment with what he was trying to do. And then we move forward in history from there. So this brings me to another tip, which is just to play with structure. Um, in general, I do believe that chronology is your friend when you're telling history stories. I think it makes a lot of sense. But you can play with structure even when you're proceeding roughly chronologically. So this is a thing that I stole from Rob Rosenthal. Um, thank you, Rob. He, he wrote uh, an article for Transom, which is an incredible resource if anyone doesn't know about it. And he noticed something smart about the structure of our show and a lot of history shows. <clears throat> So if you look at this image, um, those dots are just all the things that happen in the story chronologically. So on the left, it's like colonial America, and then the 1820s, and then the Wickersham Report, and then somewhere in the middle, it's Menlo Park. And then you move on to the more contemporary stuff. But instead of just telling the story completely chronologically, we do this. This is the E. So you start with a compelling anecdote that comes in the middle of the story, something that grabs the listener. In this case, it's the Menlo Park story. And then we circle back into the past to like provide the context that leads to that opening anecdote. And then you kind of mention that anecdote and then move beyond it. Um, so how do we bring those past sections to life? Um, at 99PI, a big thing that we lean on is archival tape. And the archival tape from the last clip I played was um, from a film called Your Police that's from this great archive called the Prelinger Archive. And it's an online Creative Commons archive of old educational films, industrial films, home movies. It has all kinds of amazing stuff. Um, which brings me to this tip. Archives and archivists are your friends. 
And there is so much archival material out there in the world that you can draw on. I put out a call on Facebook and Twitter um, asking people for suggestions for good archives and like quickly realized there could be a whole session on, on just archives. So I'm not going to go super deep on this, but here are a few places to consider. So if you're doing a story and um, you're looking for people, but maybe it's far enough in the past that most people with living experience of that history are dead, um, you can always hope there's an oral history you can draw on. And this organization, the Oral History Association, if you go to their website, they have a whole list of um, oral history projects by region, by subject. Um, it's this great clearinghouse. And if you can't find exactly what you're looking for, I bet you could reach out for them and they'll reach out to them and they'll have suggestions. Um, for archival news, we use this, if you're looking for archival news coverage of a particular event, say, um, there are a few resources that we use a lot. The Vanderbilt Television News Archive is this searchable database of national network news from 1968 onwards. Um, it's really great. There's the American Archive of Public Broadcasting, which focuses on public broadcasting in particular, the Paley Center for Media in New York, and then sometimes local broadcasters like WNYC will have archives, but it's kind of rare, honestly, because keeping up an archive is, requires resources. Um, and then I wasn't sure what to call this, but these are archives that store important historical records of all kinds, including some video and audio. Um, so the National Archive includes information on all of the presidential libraries, many of which include recordings. Um, Oye is Supreme Court-related audio. The Library of Congress is the biggest library in the world um, and has audio. The Smithsonian, Smithsonian Institution is great and has a lot of sub-archives, including stuff like Folkways, which is an archive of old music. So there's just a ton of resources out there. Um, so just to conclude the Menlo Park piece, we find out what happened to Sazankas, and then we move forward beyond Sazankas to Nixon and the war on drugs and the war on crime and the war on terror and the growing militarization of the police, which brings us up to the present. Um, so this clip starts with someone from the Minneapolis Police Department talking, and they pretty recently decided to do a uniform redesign. So it's just a couple minutes. We are police. We are not military. We don't train with the military. We're not associated with the military. We're the Minneapolis Police Department, and uh, we want to be reflective of our own community and our own image. What's not totally clear is if the color of the uniform actually matters. I mean, they can wear pink, but if they're toting guns and rubber bullets and mace um, and tasers and everything else, this is Candace Montgomery. She's an activist with Black Lives Matter, and she's taken part in protests in Minneapolis against the police. A color's not going to change that dynamic. An entire overhaul of the policing system is going to change that dynamic in people's responses. 
Of course, the problems police are facing today can't be solved by uniform change alone. But a change in uniform can be an important symbol, a way for police departments to signal to their communities that they want to have a better relationship. In the case of Chief Sizankis in Menlo Park, the uniform experiment did help lead to bigger changes. Requiring officers to wear blazers meant a certain kind of officer was drawn to the police department, the kind who was willing to get on board with the more significant reforms that Sizankis wanted to make. And even though the department eventually abandoned the blazers, many of the other changes stuck. Here's former Menlo Park Assistant Chief Dominic Peloso again. Vic was definitely ahead of his time. And, you know, as with most people who are ahead of their time, uh, you, you don't have a crowd of people that all kind of stand up and cheer for you. But it would be very interesting because within, I'd say, 10 or 15 years, almost every police department in our area, even though they didn't change the uniform or the titles or the organizational chart, were taking on that real big kind of community policing uh, thing. They went ahead and did it because that was the signs of the times. So in the end, we told this big sweep of police reform history, but threaded around a single story um, that connected to sort of the bigger themes and ideas that were at play. Um, And we get to how all of that connects to the current day at the end, but framed through the lens of history. Um, So just look for the small story that helps you tell the big story. It could be one family or one person or one moment that helps hold all of the history together. Okay, so the next case study story I want to talk about is Seeing White. Um, And this is a 14-part series on the history of whiteness by John Buin at the Center for Documentary Studies um, with guest host Chenjirai Kumanyika, who's been involved in various podcasting projects, including this one, and most recently Gimlet's Uncivil. Um, And seeing white goes all the way back to ancient Greece and then traces how the concept of whiteness was invented with a particular emphasis on race in America. And um, John looks at where the idea came from and how it connects to racism in America today. So I'm going to play an excerpt that comes close to the beginning of the first episode in the series. And um, it has some pretty rough material in it, just to give you a heads up. And it's about three minutes and 15 seconds long. The rise of Trump is just one of the many things in the last few years that have turned a newly challenging, just what is up with you all, spotlight on white people and whiteness. Do I need to list them? From the many police shootings of unarmed black people to the massacre of nine black churchgoers by the white supremacist terrorist Dylan Roof, to cultural stuff, like Oscars So White. Well, I'm here at the Academy Awards, uh, otherwise known as the uh, White People's Choice Awards. And what feels like a relentless drip, drip, month by month of glimpses into the everyday of American life. Moments not meant for public consumption, but captured on smartphones and sent ricocheting around the internet. The manhandling of black teenage girls by white cops and school cops those college kids in Oklahoma. Fraternity brothers seen on video engaging in a racist chant. Tonight, 
Or this one in the town where I live, Durham, North Carolina. After a near accident on a busy road, a man with brown skin stops his car to apologize and records the fury of a middle-aged white woman in a nice late model sedan. Calm down, ma'am. Ma'am, ma'am, please relax. It's not Relax? Relax. I'm sorry. I did not see you. Just relax. Well, you better open up your goddamn eyes and learn how to drive, you fucking Muslim. You are a Muslim, aren't you? Yes, ma'am. Proud. Oh, goddamn you, it. Son of a nigger-loving atheist bitch. Get off of me. I feel sorry for you that you're full of hatred. Why are you so full of hatred for people that are too... I'm John Bewin. It's Seen on Radio. The race beat in American journalism usually involves pointing our gaze and our cameras and microphones at people of color. That goes for me, too. Over several decades as a reporter and documentary maker, I've told the stories of black folk from Chicago to the Mississippi Delta, Latinos from North Carolina to the apple orchards of Washington State, Native Americans from the Navajo Nation in the Southwest to Ojibwe country up north. I'm proud of a lot of that work, but if I think about how I built those stories, I've often treated whiteness like the proverbial elephant in the room. You might hear about some white individuals or white-run institutions, the alleged bad apples, the discriminators. But like most American reporters, I've usually left white people as a group, the white race, unnamed. In the coming batch of episodes, a series we call Seeing White turning the lens around, looking straight at white America and at the notion of whiteness itself. Where did this idea of a white race come from? God? Nature? Or is it man-made? And if somebody manufactured the idea, why? For what purpose? How has the meaning of white changed over the centuries and how does it function now? So the opening raises an interesting question and it raises a lot of interesting questions, of course. Um, but this is a really difficult topic. It's a painful topic. It's a topic that a lot of people don't want to think about or talk about. And in fact, it's something we've been taught not to talk about or think about, which is sort of what John's getting at when he admits he's never really turned his reporting to whiteness, even after all of his years of reporting on race. So. John, as the narrator, does some work at the beginning not just to frame the questions that he's out to answer, but also to clarify his role and to be transparent about his background and past experiences. Um, and I think that's part of winning our trust, um, to have him as the guide on this journey. So here's another tip, which is just to consider your role as a narrator and to consider your own relationship to the history you're telling. And that's not to say, I mean, there won't always be a super clear connection, and that is fine. In some cases, you'll be more an omniscient narrator. Um, but in this case, you know, if the series had been done by an African-American host and reporter, it would be a different series. So um, Seeing White, the whole series presents this major challenge, which can often come up in history stories, which is what if 
No one connected to the history you're telling is alive. What if there are no oral histories? What if they all lived hundreds of years before the invention of recording technology and your characters are basically this guy, um, literally a statue carved from stone? Um, no, this guy, um, Gomez de Zerara, who was a chronicler of the Portuguese slave trade, who basically invented racism. It was that guy. Um, the whole series is really fascinating, so you should listen to it. Um, so if you're doing any story that's about pre-1940s history, it's going to be very hard to find those first-person voices to interview. And you're going to be relying heavily on historians. And in my conversation with John, I talked to him about his process of reporting this, he said that this was very new to him, and a lot of the history stories he'd done before had never featured historians. He would read historians and maybe even interview historians, but then he would talk to real people who lived the history. And that's one approach. But in this case, he didn't really have that option. So um, I'm going to play another clip, and this is from the beginning of part two of his series, um, called How Race Was Made. And in it, John is talking to a, a historian. This is um, Nell Irvin Painter. And she's a preeminent researcher and historian of whiteness and the history of race. Um, she's also a painter. I really like that picture of her. And she also happens to be a really great, clear, compelling talker, which a fair number of academics are because one of their roles is to teach. Um, but John also does just some subtle stuff as an interviewer and producer to make her less stuffy and more human and more of a character. So um, this clip starts with a fairly long question from John. And maybe, you know, of course your book starts thousands of years ago, yeah. but here's a thought I had about the starting point, mm -hmm. which is um, when I was in high school in Minnesota in the late 1970s, mm -hmm. I, re I can still remember very vividly in my social studies textbook, the three races oh, of yeah. man. Yeah, yeah. And I can see the images yeah. of the mongoloid, the caucasoid, and the negroid. Uh -huh. um, it was presented as a scientific, biological That's right. fact. That's right. That's right. Sort of like, the, you know, yeah. there's certain kinds yeah. of rocks, and yeah. here's the map yeah. of the world, yeah. and then these yeah. are the three races. Yeah. So um, is it a scientific, biological fact? <laughs> The three races, um, in the order usually presented, Caucasoid, Mongoloid, and Negroid, Caucasoid at the top, uh, is not a biological fact and only became science in the sense of anthropologists said that this is true in the 1940s. So John just leaves in Painter's responses to him as he's asking the question, you know, like, she goes, mm-hmm, and yeah, yeah, and she laughs, and she's a very active listener, so she has a lot of responses as he's telling this story about his high school textbook and asking the question, and it's a small thing, but it makes their conversation feel more alive. And I think you can he really hear the influence of This American Life and Radiolab here. There's just sort of like a transparency to it. John is this guy on a quest to understand something, and he's called up this expert, Nell Painter, and 
you know, she's a, a like excellent researcher, but she's also a real human person, and it's not stodgy the way that history can be. So when you're relying a lot on historians, just make sure to humanize them. Um, and I just wanted to play one more clip of, of Nell Irvin Painter. Um, here she's talking about Ralph Waldo, Waldo Emerson's very weird views on race. And she just has a great dry way about her where she's kind of subtly making fun of him the whole time. For Emerson, the real Americans, and the most admirable by far, were New Englanders of a certain stock, as he would have put it. Well, the best race was Saxons, like him, uh, descendants of the Northmen, the beautiful, virile, vicious Northmen. And then below that were the others, and he didn't talk about it. So, you know, she's just kind of like making a dig at him, which is funny. So um, in interviews, just do your best to get historians to talk like real people and to react and to tell jokes. And I think the best way to do that is to just make sure you're being human as, a, as an interviewer and you're making jokes and... Um, my colleague Avery Truffleman says she recommends interviewing historians in their in their homes instead of their offices if you can, so that that you just get them sort of in their natural environment. Um, there's another expert that John relies on a lot in this series. Her name is Suzanne Plissick, and she teaches a workshop for the Racial Equity Institute in Greensboro, North Carolina. And John attended their workshop a couple of years ago and said it was kind of the genesis of this whole project. And um, this is just a, a minute or so of tape, and I honestly just would not have thought this works as well as it does throughout the series. So, so we believe we need to know how we got this thing called race, if we're going to understand racism. Suzanne Plissick is with the Racial Equity Institute. The team is based in Greensboro, North Carolina, but travels the country doing anti-racism workshops. I recorded Suzanne and her colleagues a few months ago in Charlotte. REI's courses are not diversity training. Their approach is not kumbaya, let's get along, let's tolerate one another. Instead, they drop a whole lot of knowledge, especially history, but also sociology, biology. We know, for example, since the Human Genome Project, that we are what percentage genetically the same as human beings? 99 point what? Nine. 99.9. Genetically the same. There is more genetic variation in a flock of penguins than there is in the human race. So it just kind of has like a dynamic, dynamicness and kind of a call and response and you can hear her writing on the board and it creates just a small scene and has a different texture than a sit-down interview. So just be open-minded about your experts. Um, I think they, they don't have to be academic historians. They can, but they can also be community educators like Suzanne. They can be journalists who have deep knowledge of a subject. They can be people with first-person experience who've also done a lot of research to understand the history. Um, and then just finally, there's, there's one last point I want to make about this series, which is that um, there's a lot of material to be mined when it comes to 
competing narratives about history and the gap between what your average American sort of thinks our history is versus the complexity of the reality of what our history is. And I think that's at the heart of John's series, but also other podcasts that are that are being produced now, um, like Revisionist History with Malcolm Gladwell and Uncivil, um, which sort of covers untold stories of the Civil War. Um, so, Stories about Civil War monuments have been in the news all summer. Just a quick clip from Uncivil. But the monument that bothers us the most doesn't feature Robert E. Lee or the Confederate flag. In fact, it features Abraham Lincoln. It's about how high is that, maybe 20 feet? Yeah, probably about 20 feet. Lincoln is kind of looking down on us. His hand is extended. Got this black man on his knees in front of Lincoln. Maybe trying to stand up or rise. Still got a shackle around his arm. It looks like maybe the, the, the enslaved person might be shining Lincoln's shoes or something. The statue is called the Freedman's Memorial. It's in Washington, D.C., put up in 1876. It's so much in this statue. I mean, the, the man, the, the freed man who may be rising, he's got a broken chain on his arm, but he's dressed like a, he's only got like a, a loincloth. He, otherwise, he is, he is absolutely naked. Meanwhile, Abraham Lincoln is in a full 19th century dress coat, pants, boots. Lincoln is still standing over the dude. And in a way, this doesn't really give any credit or represent the agency of black people in freeing themselves. Black people were trying to free themselves, rebel from slavery before the Civil War even started. I hate this statue. <laughs> I hate it, too. So, you know, the statue is sort of the mainstream history of the Civil War. And their point is just that there's a lot of untold stories in history. And sometimes they're untold because they cut against the grain of sort of our mainstream conception of ourselves. So just pay attention to the gaps in history. Pay attention to new information that surprises you or complicates your understanding of, of what happened in the past. Okay, so the next story I want to talk about um, connects this, which is a CD produced in 1993 by the Riverside County Department of Public Social Services, to this, which is then-President Bill Clinton signing the Welfare Reform Act in 1996. And this story was reported by Chrissy Clark of Marketplace with Caitlin Esch and Gina Delvac. And I'm just going to play the opening. It's about a minute and a half. I'm holding in my hand a CD produced in the early 1990s. It's called Work Makes the Difference. The cover of the CD is hot pink and purple, very 90s geometric patterns on it. And the people behind it, the producers, the songwriters, and the performers. Well, let me just read a couple of the credits for you. First off, there is Lawrence E. Townsend, director of the Riverside County Department of Public Social Services. And below that, there's just a credit line for the Income Maintenance Division staff. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the jargon of government safety net agencies, basically these people all worked for a county welfare office. They made the CD. Here's just a taste.
I'm going to tell you the strange story of why this CD got made, who made it, who its intended audience was, because it says so much about the mindset at a moment in our history that we're still grappling with as a country. The moment when we as a nation scrapped the system we'd been relying on for 60 years to help families in poverty, the welfare system, and entirely rewrote the rules about who deserves what kind of help and why. Okay. (laughs) So this story goes on to explore um, the welfare reformers of the 1980s. These were people who wanted to overhaul how the social safety net worked And a really influential idea, one that was kind of ultimately at the heart of the national overhaul, was this idea of welfare to work. And that people on welfare just really needed to figure out how to get jobs. And I talked with Chrissy about reporting this story, and she says that pretty early on in her research, she started hearing about this guy and this CD that he made. (laughs) And she became... um, She became really obsessed with finding the CD, and the CD became her whole way into the story. So another tip is just to find a good Trojan horse. Welfare reform is a really wonky topic, and if you'd asked me if I wanted to listen to a 30-minute documentary about welfare reform, like I would not have wanted to, but the CD and then the guy behind it are a really amazing side door into the story. Um, So the man who was behind the CD was Larry Townsend. Um, here's, Here's how we meet him in the story. Today, Larry lives in a beach town in California where he drives around in a green Cadillac Seville that has a brass frame around the license plate. And etched into the brass, it says, Life works if you work. Larry loves work just the idea of it. It's one of the two main concepts that define his worldview. He has a binder full of work ethic slogans that he's collected over the years. These are from famous quotes from from all over the world. Alphabetically organized <laughs> yeah. by yeah, you. By, in fact, there, there are some that I wanted to show you. He starts with A. Aristotle suggested that happiness results from meaningful activity. It goes all the way down to T. Tolstoy declared it's a duty of each man to earn his living by the sweat of his brow and calloused hands makes independent and virtuous men. Now, that was a little sexist, but the, the point is very valid. So the other thing that we quickly learn about Larry is not just that he loves work, um, but that he really hates welfare, but that he, he ends up running the Riverside County Welfare Office, kind of planning to take it down from within. And that's those are his words. Um, a lot of other county offices emphasized education and job training, so to get more skills so you can fare better on the job market. Larry's approach was really more like get a job, any job. And as part of the program, he decides he wants to create a CD of inspirational job-related music. And I'm just going to play a little bit more of that for you. It's painful, but there's a point to playing There's a song that features a whole rap section. Supporting yourself. And then there's a song with a kind of slow reggae jam. Remember, everybody. 
And then there's a jazzy Andrews Sisters 40s style thing that's very hard not to snap your fingers to. So, you know, I, like you, find these songs very painful to listen to. (laughs) They're bad songs. Um, But they're also a very perfect manifestation of of sort of the um, condescension that was kind of at the heart of some of these ideas that people just weren't trying hard enough. Um, And a lot of that is, a lot of that feeling just sort of comes through in the CD and the lyrics of these songs and is sort of like under the surface throughout the story in a, in a way that I think is very effective. And so the CD, kind of like the police uniforms, becomes a small symbol of these much bigger ideas. Anyway, as it turns out, Larry's program becomes very influential. And uh, he's invited to D.C. for multiple testimonies in front of Congress. And Chrissy does a great job of kind of connecting the dots of how this local experiment gained national traction. And um, so here's just a minute from Larry's congressional hearing. If you call Riverside County and nobody answers the phone, you'll get a work ethic message. We have posters in the waiting room. We have uh, produced a compact disc with work ethic music. Out of curiosity, identify what, what, very much. What is work ethic music? Yes. Yeah. We've, we've gone commercial and we produced a, a compact disc and, and we started a new uh, singing group called The Ethics. And, uh, <laughs> I have listened to that moment over and over again. And I think that it might be one of the most surreal moments in the history of Senate hearings. Larry's foray into the music industry becomes a chance for senators to make a string of bad jokes and emit rounds of senatorial chuckles. Do you sing uh, hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to work we go? or what? Uh, One senator asks if the songs were produced by the 80s band Men at Work. <laughs> Some senators were unsettled by Larry's tactics. At one point, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the Democrat from New York, points at Larry and says, You, sir, are a Puritan. Terrifying. So ultimately, they end up adopting a bunch of Larry's ideas, and Clinton passes the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act in 1996, and it really did overhaul um, the way that system worked. And there's a kind of tragic epilogue to the story, which is that early assessments of Larry's program found that it was very promising, that people were doing well, they were moving into the workforce at higher rates than the people who were involved in uh, programs that emphasized education and training. But when you looked at over a longer period of time, uh, the people who had been involved in the Jobs First programs kind of got stuck in lower wage jobs. Um, So I feel like I need to move, I was going to play a little bit more tape from this story, but I think I'm actually going to just get to the final tip from this piece, which is um, look for the origin story or the inflection point. So find the people like Larry who originated ideas and then trace how their influence spread. Um, 
how those, where those ideas came from and how they changed the world. And then, so finally, I'm, I'm um, going to wrap up soon, but I wanted to talk just a little bit about a story that's told in three distinct chapters because um, I think even though we just spent some time looking at this story that's about one guy. I think there's also a danger in sometimes trying to tell history through the story of one person because history is very complicated <laughs> and uh, ideas and movements and uh, policies can't always be traced back to one person. More often, stories happen through networks of characters and in stages over time. So um, I think... A beautiful example of this is a story that aired on More Perfect. It was called The Gun Show. It's about the Second Amendment. Um, and it explores America's weird relationship with guns. It's told in three chapters, and it was produced by Sean Romsverm. So Sean starts with the actual words of the Second Amendment. Um, so I'm just going to play those words. I think we should start with one of the most confusing sentences in the Constitution, in the Bill of Rights. Not we the people. Uh, not that one. No, I got a different one. A well-regulated militia, comma, being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, comma, shall not be infringed. So they go on to talk about how there's this ambiguity inherent in the language of the Second Amendment. And it's really, are gun rights about individuals or are gun rights about militias? And the reality is that for a long time in our history, people basically ignored the Second Amendment. It was kind of dusty. Courts did not argue about it very much. Um, people thought about guns. States regulated guns. But there just wasn't argument. Um, and then that change, and the uh, story is really about why and how that changed. So here's another clip. Because there was this window of time where all of this changes, that the script just flips. There's 200 years of everything being chill, and then suddenly you get this. I want to say those fighting words from my cold, dead hands. So basically, in just a flash, the Second Amendment goes from being ignored to being... You will not disarm me! Explosive, to being radioactive. You get my gun from my cold dead hand. And in the process, we start to read the thing totally differently. All of a sudden, it's this hotly debated thing that's got nothing to do with that first part and everything to do with the second part. If she gets to pick her judges... Nothing you can do, folks. Everything to do with my personal right and me. Although the Second Amendment people, maybe there is, I don't know. But And what I want to know is, how did that happen? How do we start reading the Second Amendment the way we do now? And, and what I found out is that in the modern history of the gun rights movement and, and how we read the Second Amendment can be boiled down to these three totally unrelated, disjointed-seeming, revolutionary events. 
So Sean then tells the story of this shift in, in three chapters. And the structure of his story is more like this, where there's each of those boxes represents a distinct place and time and universe of characters. But each anecdote connects or leads to the next. And, and the connections between them are really surprising. And I won't try to summarize all three chapters, but, but just look for networks of characters too, because that's often how history changes. So I want to leave a little time for, for questions. Thanks. I really appreciate the, the various lists of archives that you included, and I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about rights questions. Um, that's something that we've all started taking a little more seriously recently, and I know at places like the Vanderbilt Archive, they say, hey, here's the, we have this sound, but we don't have the rights, you know, yeah. and so it becomes very complicated. Yeah, I mean, to be totally honest, we use that material a lot under, without, without really pursuing rights and sort of under our boss's interpretation of fair use. Um, and so far we haven't run into any problems. <laughs> but I'm not a lawyer, and... <laughs> um, Just add that I work at NPR, yeah. so there is far less latitude for yeah. running into problems, and they have started running into problems. So oh, have they? Beware. Yeah, beware, beware. Really, mine is a related question. I just okay. finished a, a long series uh, that was purely historic about life in America during World War II for Audible. And I had no idea, because I'd never done anything in commercial media, that you have to pay for everything. And so we were paying by the second for archival audio. Uh, and it, it required completely rethinking the series to just work around public domain audio. So I was wondering if, as we're all moving into, many of us, into the commercial sphere, whether it's Panoply or Gimlet or these other startups, is this going to make it harder and harder and harder to tell these historical stories? Yeah, we may. I mean, I I have worked on stories where I pursued. You know, I talked to like a local NBC affiliate to try and access their archive, and the going rate is often something like a thousand dollars a second. It can be, or sometimes they have um, rates for nonprofits, but it's it's a lot. And, you know, it might be like podcasting is approaching a moment kind of as we are doing with music, where there used to be a sense that we could sort of use any music. And I, I think that's changing. Like, we have hired on our staff a composer now um, because I think there's a sense that we're sort of becoming more visible and maybe we need to sort of be more careful around these issues. So, yeah, it may be that we're getting to a point where... There is more legal vetting that happens around archival, and I think it will change how we do what we do. Hi. Um, I, my question is, you touched on this a little bit in your talk about the, the challenges, the dangers of focusing on one character, because that's not how history really happens. But I wondered if you could just talk about other techniques, because I, I think it's very seductive, because one person's story is so powerful to draw a straight line between this thing that happens to one person and this thing that happens to another person. Right. And I str when history is so complicated, uh, I struggle with how to square 
the good story with um, yeah doing justice to the history. Yeah, that was something. So that was something I talked with Chrissy about because she did the magic bureaucrat story, and I was like, "Are you worried you sort of put too much emphasis on this one guy?" And she was. She said, "Yeah, I was really thinking about that," and she made the point that um, Larry Townsend was indeed very influential, and she believed that based on her research and based on sort of reviewing this congressional testimony and looking at the work of sociologists who'd studied his program and then the policymakers who had studied those sociologists. And so I think in her mind, as she was reporting, she was constantly sort of like poking at that idea, like, is this guy the guy? Um, And then she made this really good point, which is, he was influential, but there was also a whole environment around him in which he thrived. Like, there was a sort of set of ideas that were becoming influential that lots of people were sort of grabbing onto that made him successful. The environment was kind of primed for him. So because I just played excerpts from her story, you hear less of that, but she does do the work to kind of set up this was the broader environment that Larry was operating in. And so I think if you are telling the story of one person, you also have to do the work to describe that bigger context. And that's sort of true of the police uniform story as well. We told the story of this one guy, but we had a historian fill in this like much bigger history. So I think if you're doing the one story... You just need to be doing the work to set up the broader context, too. Hey. Hi. Um, so I produce a podcast about science and often science history and have been running into this everyone's dead problem um, on a few of our episodes. And uh, we've been trying to be creative about that, have indulged occasionally in like lovingly cheesy historical reenactment, reading aloud of letters. Um, But sometimes that tone isn't always what you want. (laughs) Um, So any creative ways of like when you're in the situation of everyone's dead and there's no tape, um, other techniques you've heard or tried? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've done a little bit of reenactment on our show too. I think, yeah, you got to have a light touch with that. (laughs) And we use... Sometimes we'll have someone read um, an old diary entry, but we use just a little bit to kind of bring maybe one particular moment to life. So I would never, I probably wouldn't build a whole story around a character, around a reenactment. I think it would be too much. Or um, so I guess use sparingly, and then I I think I think Radiolab is a good a good model for just using sound design and music to bring um, science history to life when you don't have a lot of interviews or tape um, to kind of create drama in, like, the sonic world of your story. Um, but, yeah, that's, that's challenging. Hi. Hi. Um, I just want to talk to you a little bit about the role of music in these pieces, most of which you've played, and which I know is something that I think increasingly we hear um, and coming from more traditional public radio. Um, it was something that was kind of not done. Um, and I just want you to talk a little bit about um, why you put in music when people are just talking <laughs> and telling a story. And Because um, I have 
like mixed feelings about it. And I just, I would just love to hear a little bit more about your decision to do that. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, we use music to, um, create momentum during explainy sections. Um, we use music to create a sense of drama sometimes. I think, I mean, I think that radio is a musical medium in a lot of ways. It's a, a medium that, um, you know, has a, like, rhythmicness to it. And I think we use music to try and enhance that. Um, certainly it depends on the context of your show and the expectations of your audience and whether you're doing news. I mean, you know, All Things Considered does not use music, and that's fine. I understand why they don't use music. Um, so, yeah, I think the thing you just have to be careful of is, not, is trying not to be manipulative with, with the music you use, and that's just something, that's one of the many things we consider when we're editing a piece. That's one of the things people respond to in edits. Um, um, this is kind of like more of a call to arms than a question, but um, as someone who's been the beneficiary of working with Archive, um, I produce a podcast based on an archive of oral history, um, is to be conscious of how you're archiving your work and sort of whether you have plans as a, as a show and beyond sort of, you know, we now have this sort of digital presence, but we don't know how things will be spun out and used in the future. So to sort of ask people when they're doing their work, think about how you can store it for posterity, what you do with it when you're gone and all that stuff, because it's nice to pay it forward, basically. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Are you doing that? in your work somehow I I, yeah. I I like don't even know how we do that you know yeah well one of the ways that I do it is also with sources who if it transpires that they have stuff is to try to connect them with you know the places and the people who could help them with archiving stuff so that's one way of doing it is making that connection and then in my own work is yeah storing it in a couple of places I have a hard to the extent that one can have like a hard copy a cloud copy and a and a thought just that's planted about in the future, where would this go? Where would it usefully sit? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you have a place where you're planning to... Like, I know that there's, like, pop-up archive. I feel like that was part of what they were thinking of doing, is creating this searchable archive of old interviews. And do you have a resource you use? Um, at the moment, as I say, it's just sort of saving it and collating it. Mm-hmm. Um, I would, it depends, you know, what it looks like later. But um, New York Public Library is a place that is now um, interested in quite a lot of collections and is, and is building its collection. It was interesting in terms of your archives. One of the frustrating things with them is that they don't yet have a real public-facing uh, interface. Um, you kind of have to go there to listen to stuff. But, um, but that's one place, because so much of my work has been in New York, it would make sense. Yeah. Okay, Thanks. Hey, Ike. Hi, Delaney. Thanks for your talk. <laughs> yeah. I, I have a question on the all history portion. Yeah. <laughs> like, we don't have the timeline of academic research. Um, and I was thinking of that thing that Nicole Hannah-Jones says where, like, all of her stories start in the 15th century when the first slave ship showed up in America. 
I'm wondering when, if you could talk a little bit about your process and how far you go in the zoom out of all history. Like, how do you tell, like, do the military officers in the Peloponnesian War, like, how far do you go back? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, it depends on the story. Yeah. It's interesting because I've, I've read interviews with Nicole Hannah-Jones about, about that stuff, and it seems, like, it seems like part of the point she's making is that as a reporter, she wants to understand that history. But when she's doing her stories about school segregation, we don't actually necessarily read about <laughs> the 15th century. <laughs> but that that historical awareness informs her reporting. So I do think that's very important. Like, I think as a person covering history, having a deep and broad awareness of, um, of history is important, and then you sort of find the, the more reasonable starting point that feels maybe more directly connected to, to the story. Um, does that, yeah. Yeah, it would be amazing if all stories went back to like the beginning of time. <laughs> but we're like a 20 minute podcast, so. Um, I have kind of a related question. I'd just be curious to hear what your uh, research and sourcing process is and booking process. You know, when you start off with a question or an episode that you want to explore, how you start reading and, and wh- how you start winnowing in on the kind of characters and the historians that you're going to be using and whether or not you kind of enter into historiographic battles with it, you know, different interpretations of a story and when you know that you've kind of got the elements that you need and the, and the approach that you need. And I mean, obviously, we have, there are a lot of deadline considerations. And yeah. as somebody who does kind of some historical stuff, and I'll add a little correction with, for all things considered, sometimes using music um, occasionally. Um, I have way less time oftentimes, but I, I wonder how you kind of fit all those constraints in and figure out where yeah. the story is. Yeah, I mean... <clears throat> Our typical, our typical turnaround for a story is about six to eight weeks from the pitch to release, to releasing the story. And that includes the whole writing and editing and production process. And then, um, so a lot of the research happens before that um, and can take anywhere from a couple weeks to a month or two. But... Just given that, there's, a, there's necessarily limits to sort of how much deep research we can do. Um, so yeah, we try, to be, we try to be deep and contextual and um, accurate and complex, but within the limits of that time frame. So yeah, I mean, I'll usually... Uh, that usually means you'll have time to read a book or two, a bunch of articles, a bunch of reporting on the issue if there is previous reporting on it. Um, we'll, each, each episode will usually have anywhere between, depending on its complexity, three to eight interviews involved and a couple of those people, two to three of those people might be historians who've done the research so that's kind of the depth we're working at. 
Um, other shows that have more time probably go deeper, and then other shows that have less time don't. I mean, I'm actually really interested in shows like The Daily that do do some of this this history on a daily turnaround, but drawing on the, like, long-term knowledge and research of their reporters who are, like, very well-versed in certain subjects and have built up that historical understanding over, like, years of reporting and kind of can, like, bring it to an interview really quickly. You know, I think different shows do it in different ways. Hi, my name's Eve Epstein. I'm with Marketplace, but in an earlier, wearing an earlier hat, I did a, produced a few short pieces called Politics 101 BC. And I just want to emphasize that there are academics out there who can talk um, like humans and who have fascinating, I mean, to your question about, I was working with a classics professor who was talking about voter fraud in the ancient world and, um, uh, you know, flip-flopping, which was a thing back in ancient Greece. Um, So there are ways that you can and draw out those stories and really make connections to the modern day. Yeah, that's great. I agree. Um, Thanks so much for coming. You just listened to all of the second presentation of The Past Isn't Past with Delaney Hall. But before we finish up, we also want to share the Q&A from the previous day's presentation of that session. Here you go. I had a question about voicing people in the past in that I've been experimenting with having different approaches to having actors read actual words that historical people said or reading scripted versions. I'm wondering what your experience is with that because initially when you go in, you're afraid of being cheesy. Yeah. And, <laughs> and the cheese factor can, can step in pretty quickly. And I'm wondering if you've seen it done well and, and if you've tried it yourself or what is, yeah. what's your experience been there? We do do that sometimes on, on 99PI. Um, I'm looking at Sharif, who <laughs> works for the show in the back of the room, and he has played a number of, of historical <laughs> figures <laughs> on the show. <laughs> um, and I think it is, it is hard. I think the, um, when we did it most successfully, uh, we had Al Letson, who's the host of Reveal, but is also an actor, uh, read read some work from a historical figure. And I do think having a, a pro can help a lot in terms of making it sound, making the delivery sound natural. Um, and then we just use it sparingly. I don't, I don't know that I would ever build a story um, around a lot of that kind of material. It's just to sort of bring to life small moments. So that's, that's been my experience with it. Somewhat related to that, I'm wondering what you think about doing recreations of events when there isn't tape to be had. Um, I had a story recently that involved a plane crash from the 1930s, and there was there were photos available in archives, but not audio. So we did some like very light touch recreation of sound with other like B-17 material and then had a historian check to be like, is this how you think it would have sounded? But I'm wondering how you would have dealt with something like that. Yeah, I mean, we've done a little bit of that just subtly in sound design. And then there are shows certainly that do a lot more of that, like Radio Lab and More Perfect. 
And then I think there's shows that just would not do that at all. And I think it depends on the context and the and your sort of the identity of the show and the expectations of your audience. I think um, if yeah, I've 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 heard a wide range of responses on this. I think there's some famous anecdote about a Kitchen Sisters story where they were doing a story about the past and they wanted to use some sheep noises or something, but it was airing on on Morning Edition and the the standards of that show were just you do not use sound in that kind of way. You do not do reenactments. So um, it is something we do a little bit on our show. I know other shows do it. If you're a more journalistic show, I think a lot of people shy away from it. Uh, I'm curious if you've ever come into situations where you've found debate like within the history itself about an event and then how you handle that and if there's like an event horizon where you're like, well, let's not try to settle that here on this show or right now. That's a really good, that's a good question. Um, I mean, certainly I think if there's debate about what happened, we would want to provide both perspectives and wouldn't try to settle it. Um, But yeah, I think there are things about history that are unsettled and are contested and are open to interpretation and I think that is interesting to to put those put those views side by side and sort of let them exist together um, so I can't think of specifics but yeah yeah uh, I had a question about using experts and historians mm-hmm. occasionally you have figures who are incredibly well qualified uh, in their area, but incredibly dull talkers. Uh, and you might have people less well-qualified who are extremely entertaining uh, storytellers. How do you deal with that struggle between in sort of academic integrity versus making entertaining uh, programs? Yeah. Um, I think I would try to interview both of them and maybe maybe use each of them a little bit. Um, I also think if the person's a great talker and a totally qualified expert, maybe not the preeminent voice, I think my personal choice would be to go for the person who's, you know, solid and knows a lot but is more entertaining. Hey, thank you. This is a really, really good talk. Thanks, Delaney. Thanks, Ben. Um, so I've, I've been sort of working with and following a lot of what I think are kind of like a new kind of history podcasts that have, are becoming really popular, like Hardcore History and like Fall of Rome. And they're approaching history from a totally, totally different direction that um, I wouldn't think would be super popular, but here they are, super, super popular. I'm wondering if you guys are looking at those shows, the sort of like single voice, lots of sound design, super nerdy, really in depth, and (laughs) if you guys are like, are are learning any lessons from those, or or how you're thinking about those kinds of shows? That's a really, that's a really interesting question, because when I was talking about this, (laughs) this session with coworkers, I was like, but not like hardcore history, like I don't mean that kind of history. (laughs) Um, which is just personal taste because I know those shows are hugely popular. Um, And I think 
In terms of historical storytelling, what's, what's more interesting to me is are these stories that do draw, create connections between how the past shaped the present. And my, I'll admit, limited knowledge of hardcore history, it feels more like, you know, like a 12-part series on the Roman Empire. And that it just sort of exists, like frozen in the past without without making those leaps to the present. So, um, but I'm sure there's things to learn from those, those podcasts, and I should probably listen to them. Um, they just, they're like not my cup of tea. I, I have a really hard time with podcasts that are just a single person's voice kind of going and going. Uh, hi, uh, I just wanted to say that uh, we do a history podcast uh, which is called Stories from the East and West and it's specifically about Central Eastern Europe. So all the experts don't speak English, pretty much. Uh, and for example, we wanted to do a show about the invention of the bulletproof vest in the late 19th century. There is one guy who knows about that and uh, his English wasn't great. And then we spent the whole time, uh, we interviewed him and then we edited it. It was a nightmare to edit but we were just determined to do the story, essentially. Uh, do you ever find that um, you start working on a story and then you just give up because the history, the, the archive, uh, the experts just aren't there? Huh. I haven't yet had that experience, and I'm, I'm honestly surprised. Like, you couldn't find any English-speaking experts on this issue? His English was just about manageable. We, we, like I said, lots of editing, so. Yeah. That's tricky. I think maybe we're maybe a lot of our stories, honestly, are, are set um, in the U.S. and we face much less of that. Um, I, I haven't come across a story where I couldn't find the people to tell it. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> you mentioned the um, the the E, and I think that's a brilliant concept. But the idea of how do you know, or when do you feel like? Oh shoot! This has become like a Ken Burns documentary, and like, well, like, like, let's not go down this rabbit hole. But like, I sort of want to like mention this, but I that sort of like is it the sort of like innate this is too much, or is that sort of a conversation amongst colleagues? Or I mean, Ninety Nine Pi is a show that has a you know a fondness for tangents, um, especially if they're sort of like wonky and nerdy and. <laughs> um, so we do that a fair amount. I think, you know, one thing that I really learned from John's series and w was that you can, pers because of podcasting, <laughs> you can stretch out so much more. And his series included interviews with historians to cover this broad context and then... Um, more reported documentaries and then debriefing conversations with his friend Chenjirai and all of that kind of was able to like fit into this into this series. So I think I think one of the great beauties of podcasting is that it's opening up that kind of space to 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 let stories breathe more and to sort of follow stories down those rabbit holes sometimes. Um on the other hand, we do a very sort of tightly produced and edited 20 to 30 minute story each week and we have a pretty tight narrative that we stick to. So, you know, um, 
I think there's options. I think that's the main thing with podcasting. It's created options. Hey, I'd love to hear a little bit more about um, some practical things like your scheduling and workflow. So how far in advance do you plan your stories out? How long do you give yourself to work on a single episode? How much of that time do you spend on research? How much on interviewing? Just those kinds of general workflow questions. Right. Um, So we have a staff of, what, at this point, six or five producers, six producers? Five producers, yeah. Um, And the typical turnaround for a story is six weeks, eight weeks in that realm. And there's a little bit of flexibility because we have multiple producers on staff, so some stories get turned around faster, and that creates room to take longer on a more complex story. Um, But yeah, from the pitch being green-lighted, green-lit, to the release of the story is generally about six to eight weeks. And so um, a fair amount of research happens before you actually make the pitch. Um, to, so that you're able to sort of frame the scope of the story you want to tell and talk about some of the voices you plan to hear in it. And then I think roughly two weeks would be spent doing interviews and gathering sound. Um, two weeks on the... Right, wait, now I'm getting <laughs> confused about our process. Um, maybe more than that. Maybe it's more like three weeks gathering interviews and then like a, a, a week like transcribing and kind of grappling with all your material and like a week or two writing and then a couple weeks editing. That may not all add up to six weeks, but somewhere in the six to eight week realm. Um, yeah. And then our editing process is generally there's a couple back and forths with uh just between the reporter and an editor on the story. And then we bring the group in to actually listen to a read-through with tape and then a rough mix. So there's many rounds of editing that go into the show. And you're just doing one story at a time? Yes, yeah. The producers are all working on, in parallel on their own stories, but when it comes to the intensive editing process, we're working typically from one story at a time. Hey, maybe this doesn't make sense, but uh, <laughs> a colleague of mine over here had mentioned how the CD like story was really funny because of the CD, but also that a lot of us know that welfare is bad. And so like, kind of the question for me was more just like, I'm specifically curious about this CD, but I don't know if like, the story would have happened without the CD, if that makes sense. Like, because you talked about the Trojan horse, but I wonder sometimes if a Trojan horse almost gets in the way of the story. And I wonder, just like thinking about, like, sometimes you can be more attracted to the Trojan horse than the actual, I guess, plot of the story. And I'm wondering, like, when you can sense if something's becoming more of a focus and where to go with that. Mm-hmm. Well, it may have been a little deceptive because a lot of the excerpts I played were about the CD. <laughs> um, but the story was... 30 minutes long and really got into sort of the, the details of how this particular program worked versus how these other programs worked. And the, you know, they brought in experts to evaluate these different 
programs to see what were the results and then those that made Larry Townsend very famous and then he testified before Congress so there's a lot of like there's a lot beyond the the CD itself I just found the CD to be kind of a great portal into the story and a way of uh, talking about these ideas that was just unexpected and surprising. Thank you, everyone. I really, I really appreciate you coming. Thanks a lot.